They spent two years talking to every oncologist they could find in New York to learn about cancer, the IT and software they use. Being in the company, they didn't know the specific thing that the company was solving, but they used that credibility and the team. And you know, they brought a bunch of people from the healthcare industry later on to go in and you know start this $2 billion company. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development, tax credits, and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast AI software to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past seed and series A and have collectively raised over $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. So when you're starting a company, there's like millions of myths out there. And you never know, you're always like reasoning with analogy. Oh, this person did it this way. This other person did it that way. You never really know what's the right way. And what the right way might be for somebody else is not the right way for you. So I couldn't find a better speaker on this topic than Ali here, because Ali has collected the largest data set on startups, like 30,000 data points to analyze every piece of it to figure out what makes super founders and unicorns. Ali, welcome to Traction. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Lloyd. Ali's got a very illustrious career. He's started with an academic background in neuroscience, and now he's a VC. He's been a founder. Ali, give us your background. I mean, this is this is probably the most interesting background that I've interviewed ever, and I've done like maybe 200 interviews. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're flattering me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was in academia uh, first. I was doing research, you know, going to conferences and, and publishing journal papers in, in the world of, you know, brain-computer interfaces and human-computer interaction. And this was, you know, 10 years ago. This was way before Elon Musk made this, this space sexy and everybody paid attention. Uh, and there wasn't as much funding for, you know, brain-computer interfaces 10 years ago. And, you know, I've started companies in, in the fintech space. So the last company I started was in the industrial hardware 
hardware and building wearable devices, you know, grew that company to millions of dollars in, in revenues. And, you know, finally jumped on the other side and I've been investing. Uh, I'm a partner at a firm called DCVC. You're a deep tech firm investing in uh, with about $2.3 billion under management. We typically lead rounds uh, in deep tech companies, basically anywhere from rockets and space satellites to drugs and therapeutics and agriculture and everything in between that's, you know, very hard scientifically. And then you got into investing. What drove you to get into investing and what sort of companies are interesting for you? Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's it's kind of a, a normal progression for, you know, for founders to become investors at one point. I may go back and become a founder again and jump back into invest at, you know, kind of similar jobs. And, you know, investing is, is a privileged position that you, you get to interact with a lot of amazing entrepreneurs uh, working on their dreams and their projects. And you get to see all of them, you know, try to help here and there as much as you can and, you know, see where they go. So it's an exciting, it's, it's an exciting position to be in with deep tech. You know, we get to see the future, what's going to happen in, in the next 10 years. And what I'm interested in, in terms of investing is, first of all, my thesis is people. I, I invest in people. I literally, when I source companies, I first look at who and then see, okay, what, what the company does. And, you know, normally I like old industries, people going after textiles, after materials, after construction, after agriculture, chemicals, all, all of these, you know, trillion dollar industries are, you know, much bigger than tech itself. So I love companies that go after these kind of things. Or maybe, you know, taxes, the thing that you're going after. Awesome. Yeah. And, and you know, I love people. Drive. You know, I had a harrowing experience with COVID in January when you think you're invincible. And I used to bodybuild and do 100 burpees at a stretch. And then I almost <laughs> died after a fundraise of COVID was hospitalized. And I realized one thing. It's not, it's not the money in your bank. It's the people around your tombstone that matter. And relationships transcend companies. A lot of people, we, we added 50 people at Boast Post Arrays from like 30 in December. And most of them are relationships. So I, I completely yeah. admire that. Focus on people. So let's dive into, in, into your reason for publishing this book. Why did you go on this journey to amass 30,000 data points? And probably not all of it was analyzing automatically. Right? You probably did some manual a- analyzing. None so- of it was. None oh, of really? it was. It was so all walk us, manual. Walk us wow. So you, you <laughs> did, which is, which is against your, your thesis and your background. So you did manually analyze 30,000 data points. I manually collected 30,000 data points, data point by data point by data point. It took four years. I'll walk you through it. Awesome. Um, let's, let's hear it. So it, it started, it all started four years ago. And, you know, as a venture capitalist, it's my job to sort through, you know, thousands of companies per year to get to invest in a couple. And, you know, I've been a founder before and I've seen the narratives and, you know, what, what, what entrepreneurs look, look up to, what, what are the famous stories, you know, it's that social network movie. I've watched that movie like 20 times. Stories of Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Wozniak, these famous stories. This is what we think about when we think about, you know, very successful companies. Uh, kind of role models or what success may look like. And these popular narrative, these kind of five examples or 10 examples creates a narrative bias in our mind that we think all these, you know, 300 unicorns that are started look like those five examples. And as a venture capitalist, I was seeing a difference between what those famous stories are or what the stories make their way to media compared with what actually becomes successful. So I wanted to see, you know, is there actually something different between, you know, companies that become billion dollar successes versus the companies that do not, you know, raise some VC funding, but fail or become small successes? Is it all luck? 
or is there anything inherently different? And I didn't want to look into momentum type of signals. You know, a lot of there's a lot of investors who look into, you know, if your growth is 40%, you know, week over week or months over months, then you're good. These are all lagging indicators. I wanted to see day one, your team, your idea, your you know, market dynamic, your competitive landscape. Is there anything inherently different between you know companies that end up billion dollar outcomes uh, versus the ones they didn't? And you know you would think that data exists somewhere, um, but it doesn't. There's PitchBook and Crunchbase, and you can find the you know what the names of the co-founders are, and you can find the history of the fundraising of these companies. But nobody has data on how many competitors they had when they started. Nobody has any data on what the market size was when they started. Nobody has quantified the career path of the founders of the early team. Nobody has quantified the investors, the fundraising patterns, the defensibility factors, the pivots, the the product type the pain points. So I set out and I wrote down 65 data elements that I thought could be useful to study. And I went on and collected this data. And because, you know, it takes a lot of judgment to understand who were the competitors, what was the market size. I had to use the, you know, internet layback machine, go read historical interviews, go, you know, read a lot of historical things, email founders, you know, cold email these founders one by one asking them, you know, what was this situation looked like back in the day? Here I read, you have two co-founders. In the other source I read, you have three co-founders. What's the ground truth? What's the reality? That's why it's it's a manual task. It took me four years, you know, putting together this data, literally one data point by one data point by one data point uh, to create this. And you know, no study is meaningful without studying the the control sample, the, you know, so I studied the unicorns, but I had to study, you know, the non-unicorns too. So I went on and collected the same data points, the six, the, the same 65 data elements on companies that raised a minimum of $3 million from venture capitalists, but did not become unicorns. So that's my you know, what's a typical seed funded startup looks like? Uh, what's the average random startup? And I compared them with the billion dollar group, day one on the idea, on the team, on the founders, on everything else. And I wanted to see, you know, what was different between them. And, you know, as I, as I was collecting this data and finished, you know, analyzing it, there was a lot of things that were shocking, counterintuitive, even, you know, even to my thinking. And, you know, that's, that's what inspired me to write the book. So I, I started interviewing a lot of people. I interviewed founders of Zoom, GitHub, Instacart, Nest, uh, a bunch in healthcare, Flatiron Health, Kite Pharma. You know, I started putting together the, the interviews with the data set and went through the publication process, wrote the book during the pandemic. And the book just, just came out today. Uh, it's audiobook, Kindle, and, uh, you know, physical hardware hardcover books. Awesome. That's a that's a great story and I'm seeing here people already saying they've been they've been downloading your book and you've you many of the companies that you've invested in have also spoken at Traction. We recently had uh, Carbon Health CEO and you called him uh super founder. <laughs> right? I mean that, that was that was one of the key investments that came out of the the data set of my book that that was predictive of their success. So that that's what made me lead that round and and, and Carbon and, and, you know, look at the company now, it's grown, I think, 30x since I invested. And they're, they're in a very interesting uh, space because 
they're digitizing or streamlining a services industry. And yeah. when you're doing that, it's not your traditional SaaS. So it's technology meets operations design. So we had a long chat about that. So that's very fascinating uh, because right now, if you look at it, everyone wants to see the same SaaS metrics, the same CAC to LTV ratios, and probably those things don't apply to companies that are disrupting traditional industries like that. Right? Exactly. And you know, these industries are much, much bigger than traditional tech. And, you know, a lot more founders should care about them because there's a lot more opportunities there going towards mining material, you know, obviously healthcare and government, civic technologies. There's a lot of opportunities in all of these spaces. So that's why we're tackling the government tax credit space. Exactly. Awesome. I dropped a link to uh, Ali's book here, recommended. He's donating the profits from it. So highly, highly recommended. One, it's a great book. Two, Ali is a genius. And three, he's donating the profits. There couldn't be a better cause than this. So awesome. Ali, let's get into the traits of a super founder, then why don't you summarize for us the key traits? One, define what is a super founder and what are the key traits? So, you know, a lot of times when we think about these successful founders, we see the last step in the game. We see kind of the overnight success. Clubhouse, you know, one year, $4 billion valuation. We think about it as, you know, two guys coming up with an awesome idea and they start a clubhouse. Or, you know, two female founders, coming up with a great idea, starting a company, something great comes up. We don't see those kind of years behind it. And, you know, when I looked into the data, that's what fascinated me the most, that, you know, a lot of these founders just looked like everybody else, that they grinded, they failed, they had small successes. So the most common trait among these billion-dollar company founders, and the most striking when you compare the random group with the billion-dollar group is that all of these billion dollar founders or many of them had a small success before their billion dollar company. And before that, they may have had failures. They may have had to have even smaller successes. It's been a journey for them. They had worked for this themselves. They had started companies. They had started side hustles. Even, even people who we think are first-time founders, they're not. They're, they're not first-time builders. You go back, look at them. They've built a bunch of things. Now, let's, let's start with a bunch of examples. You know, Clubhouse... Rohan and Seth, they, they spent nine years trying to crack the code of consumer social. They had nine failed ideas between them, and they each had a small success. And, you know, what is a small success? In the world of venture capital, this would be even considered a failure. If, if you know, if you get this $3 million, $4 million seed funding and you, your company is acquired by somebody else for you know, a couple million dollars, basically returning the money to investors, that's normally considered a failure in, in the venture capital world, but that's, you know, that's a small step, that's a small success. So for these guys, you know, they, one of them sold the company to Opendoor, like Echo hired, this company was by Opendoor, the other one by Pinterest before going and starting Clubhouse. If you look at a lot of these other ones, Stripe is a 19 year old, at 20 something, they were, you know, multi-billionaires. We think about them as first-time founders. Stripe is in their first company. Two companies before Stripe, they founded Octomatic. This is an auction management tool for sellers on eBay. And a public company in Canada acquires this company for $4.5 million. Airtable, $2 billion company. Uh, now, you know, and obviously growing super fast. Before this, the founder, Howie, he started a company and Salesforce acquired it for $25 million. The bar could be even lower. I think Daniel Eck, uh, Spotify, his company, he built something for a million dollars and it was acquired for a million dollars. Alex Tew, this is the founder of Calm, you know, the number one meditation app, uh, $2 billion valuation. 
six years before starting this company, he started this website called the Million Dollar Homepage. And this is, you know, a, a website with 1,000 pixels by 1,000 pixels, and he sells each pixel for $1. This is before you know, display ads was a thing. And he makes a million dollars, basically 1 million pixels. And it's not a venture-backed company. It's not a startup. It doesn't have a team. It makes a million dollars. That's the preparation for him to come in and, you know, finally starting a $2 billion company later on. This is the trait that, you know, if you look at a lot of these founders, they hack, they start building something, they fail. You know, a lot of them failed before. A lot of them had a bunch of failures, catastrophic failures, small failures, and small successes like this before finally getting and building, you know, billion dollar companies like them. So it's, it's, I think it's very much an inspiration. It is not to discourage first-time founders. This is to, you know, inspire, you know, it's, it's a long journey. It's, it will have, have ups and downs and, you know, take the, take the journey and the strides and, you know, try to get small wins, maybe sell a small company, maybe create a project that makes, you know, a little bit of money and, you know, create resources, create a network, create credibility for yourself through that, that process. And maybe it's your next project in the next company that becomes a much bigger success. And you know, venture capitalists talk about backing serial entrepreneurs or, you know, people with, with a massive success. Uh, but what they're looking for, you know, if you've sold a company for $400 million, let me back you. But, you know, the data shows it's not about going from $400 million to $2 billion. Even these, you know, small successes, people who, who hustle and grind and, you know, make some money like this, they're much more likely to start billion dollar companies than somebody who has just went up the career ladder at Google and is like a VP or exec there, but has never built something, has never hacked something. That's why like when I talk to founders, I ask them, what have you hacked? What have you built? What have you sold before? Rather than you know, what's your title now at Google or how many people you manage at you know, this big company. So that's that's one of the one of the key things. You know, even first time founders, Bill Gates, Microsoft isn't the first company. First one was Trafo Data, the traffic surveillance hardware. Zuckerberg, Facebook was his first company, but not his first project. Synapse, a music player app like Spotify in 1999, that was his first project. Microsoft wanted to buy that for 950K. So, you know, we see we see this trait uh, among these founders a lot. In all the people you talk to, because there's 200 plus unicorns, were there any first time founders that were unicorns? Yes, uh, almost 40%. 37%. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Go on, on, on some of the other common traits of, of the founders, but you're saying more than 60% had this trait where they were constantly working on other projects, probably with team members, hacking on the side, failing, moving on, leveling up. Um, and, and that's a, that's a common trait. I've, I think a few months ago, I spoke to Rahul superhumans founder, and he yeah. talked a lot about good things take a long time to build. And they've been at it since 2014. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's about creating this just chain of trust and resources. I think at the end of the day, great entrepreneurs who become successful, they become successful because they have resources to hire, to hire board members, to make connections, to sell to customers, to get funding. It, the game is about resources. If you have resources, you can build a successful company. The problem is a lot of people don't have resources, enough resources to do all these things. And that's those are the kind of resources you get to build from one company to another, from one project to another, from one nonprofit to another. The founding CEO of Cloudflare, um, he had started a nonprofit in you know, collecting spam emails, the Project Honeypot, before starting Cloudflare. Confluent, you know, Neha, 
she had started, you know, Apache Kafka in at, at LinkedIn as an open source project before, you know, obviously starting um, Confluent, building, you know, SaaS services around around a company. So it's about, you know, starting these projects, open source, nonprofit, hacking things about different things and going after them. Now, so this was about the founders. We can we can look at, you know, what, what we see in the products and the markets and the competition landscape as well. In terms of product, they were a lot, the, the billion dollar ones, they were a lot more likely to be very highly differentiated. So at the time they were founded, they were bizarrely different from what was in the market. This is kind of like the 10x advantage that people talk about. But, you know, even the data shows that the, the, the products that kind of looked bizarre and a lot of people were amused by that. A lot of people were shocked by, you know, what is this, even in a bad way, they were more likely to become billion dollar companies that than kind of incremental companies or companies that were just, you know, a little bit better or, you know, just a little bit different. So high product differentiation uh, was another factor by itself. For example, you know, Nest, you know, every thermostat for, you know, thermostat is a 200 year old thing and everybody has built these rectangular things. Uh, with programmable stuff. And then Nest comes with a round digital thing, uh, which is, you know, very, very different Wi-Fi enabled thing that that came uh, came at that point. The other one is competition. And that's a little bit myth, a little bit, you know, characteristic. You know, 85% of the billion dollar company founders, they had competition on day one. It feels like, you know, a lot of founders try to say, we don't have any competitors. You know, it's an empty market. It's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, uh, I think the data showed only 30% of unicorns started in a new market or created a new market by themselves. 70% were, were working in a market that was already defined, that was already big. And, you know, it was an established market. It wasn't a white market. And you, the ones that were competing with incumbents. So if you go in the market that it's like that, and, you know, there's a lot of old sleepy giant companies, you know, there, uh, maybe it's the Oracle, maybe it's Visa and MasterCard, maybe it's the banks, you know, in each industry to its own, you know, every industry has their own incumbents. The ones that were competing with those incumbents, they were more likely to succeed, especially compared to those that were copycatting other startups that were already highly funded. Definitely. And then in, in terms of the traits of the of the founders, you talked about as hacking together projects, working together, stress is the preconditions for growth, right? Like if you don't, if you don't fail, you don't learn. And you talked about resources. Yeah, people don't realize every time you do a project and collaborate with other people, you build relationships and those relationships transcend companies. Like, you know, I'd worked on a number of projects. Now people like that from, from those companies are coming to work for us. VCs, yeah. connections, everything, everything grows. Right. And, and if you're like working in isolation, you can't. Um, yeah. When you what, look back and, you know, connected dots of, you know, how you know different people and how they came together. It's, it's very interesting. You know, when you look at your, your career in the last you know, 10 years or 20 and how a lot of these connections, you know, go back to different projects you've done. Definitely. Now I want to drill back into, into the super founder and then go in, dive into the company uh, again. Outside of that, what were two other traits you saw that were very common or high likelihood of success? So th that was the thing about founders. That, that was the key thing. A lot of other things are myth. The other characteristics that I saw was about, you know, the, the idea to be, you know, highly differentiated, the idea to have defensibility. So the companies that had something that was defensible about them, even if it was engineering, obviously network effects, even brand through, you know, creating a community or a, a defensible habit around it, they were a lot more likely to succeed compared to companies that didn't have an inherent 
defensibility mode around them. So defensibility turns out it's an important thing. And last factor, it's obviously it's not it's not correlation. Uh, it's it's not causation necessarily because it's a, it's a loop that comes back. But the companies that that were able to raise more money and from you know tier one VCs, they were a lot more likely to succeed. Now, obviously, it's not because of that. It's mostly because you know this was a good team and a good a good idea, and they were able to raise more money and you know a lot of other factors. But it was an interesting thing to see. You know, sixty percent of billion dollar founders were already you know raised their seed or Series A fund from a tier one firm. Definitely. Now, when you look at these unicorns, right? Like you, there's seven or eight traits you saw there, and you mentioned a couple of them. What are some other key ingredients you saw there what, in these unicorns that are maybe maybe common in, in the companies specifically? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe we can, we can kind of use this to move on to the, to the things that I saw did not matter. Yeah, and exactly. Maybe I can, I can, I want to make it engaging. So maybe ask, ask a bunch of questions about this. Yeah. Um, what, you know, I'm asking the audience and, you know, please use the chat chat for this. Um, what percentage of these unicorn founders in consumer tech do you think uh, had domain expertise, like came, came from that industry? Like if you're building something in, I don't know, beauty, you were in beauty, or if you're building something in insurance, uh, they had experience in the, in the insurance industry and things like that. So the answer is 30%, only 30% of founders unicorns in consumer tech and only 40% of founders of unicorns and even an enterprise B2B came from the same industry. The other ones did not have any domain expertise. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't have work experience. On average, they had 11 years of work experience. But not necessarily in that industry. In that same industry. They may have worked for themselves, worked in other companies, other industries, but, you know, in, in different, in different types of companies. Okay. So that's, that's about kind of domain expertise. And again, when I compare this with the random group, it doesn't necessarily say you're less likely if you're more likely, if you don't have experience, you know, when I compare the two groups, the same things like domain expertise, basically by itself, isn't, isn't an advantage, isn't a disadvantage. And uh, basically when, when you look at a lot of these founders, what was important about them was their speed of learning and their resources to go and network and learn more than anybody else about that specific problem. So they use their network to go and, you know, talk to everybody in that specific market and learn more than anybody else about that specific problem and their target. And, you know, they change the idea until they found uh, the correct edge to go into the market. I interview Nat Turner, who is the founder of Flatiron House. And he's one of these super founders that, that I talk about. You know, he started from uh, selling snakes to baseball cards to building snake. A, you said snakes. Yeah, I think yeah, growing <laughs> snakes and selling them, something like that. It's amazing. Um, to a pizza delivery company in college, and then to an ad tech company that Google acquired for twenty five million dollars. Then to starting Flatiron House. And you know what they did? They spent two years talking to every oncologist they could find in New York to learn about cancer, the IT and software they use. And you know, even three years after being in the company, they didn't know the specific thing that the company was solving, which was you know real-world evidence. But they used that credibility and the team, and you know, they brought a bunch of people from the healthcare industry later on uh, to go in and you know uh, start this two billion dollar company. 
uh, that, that was acquired by Roche for $2 billion. Now, there's a few questions here. How much did age of the founders factor in? Because, you know, let there's all these things. Yeah. Let me let me ask the question from, from the group. What do you think is, is the average or median age of, you know, unicorn founders? To everybody who was answering, did... Does anybody think the answer they gave, the, the people in that age bracket, do you think they were more, or is there an age bracket that the people in there was more likely to start billion dollar companies or not? Like if you said 24, do you think, you know, people 20 to 24 were more likely to start unicorns? For the Asians, do you think they were more likely to build a billion dollar company? I, I think it's all over the place. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. Somebody is saying before you have kids. <laughs> before family responsibilities which might be true because like you know crazy founders their families end up becoming collateral damage to the venture i've, I've suffered myself a lot but you're saying it's all over the place is that is that what you found yes yeah, so the, the age range is quite substantial so it's from 20 years old to 68 the median was 34 the average is 35.6 years old. But when you compare the two groups, the unicorns and the random group, there isn't a specific age where you're more or less likely to succeed. So, you know, none of these, the older people, the younger people, they were not more likely to succeed or less likely to succeed. But I think the 34-year-old average is typically higher than what I hear or what the what the popular narrative is that's, you know, they're 22 when they start or they're 25 then when they start. Or, you know, some people think they're much older. They think, you know, the average is 45 or, you know, things like that. So it's kind of in the middle. So Sharifa asked here, how important is resource or connections compared to knowledge and proper execution? I don't have data on that, but my hunch is a lot. I would say it's probably more important. Resources uh, and connections. Yes, because you can learn the domain expertise, but you can't invent the resources overnight that that comes up that takes 10 years to build so what you're saying is your network is your net worth <laughs> it definitely is and it's not it's obviously not your you know you have twenty thousand followers on linkedin that's not important it's, it's about you know do you have 20 people you can call on that you know can introduce you to the next set of customers or board members or you know executives you can hire that you know they're willing to do the work for you. I wholeheartedly agree with that, actually. But if Fernando asks, if you had to choose one factor to predict success, would it then be resources? Um, probably. I mean, if I were, I mean, that's that's the thing that I said, you know, what have you hacked before? What have you sold before? And, you know, maybe that I hope that's created enough resources for you. But I think that the non-lagging predictor of that is basically what have you done before? What, what, have, you, what have you hacked before? Definitely. Now, when in somewhere I read, you talked about like there is a deliberate ideation process behind successful startups. Is that true or not? Yeah. So, you know, this is this is another myth uh, that I think we keep hearing that a lot of founders were solving their own personal problems. And, you know, this came out of their personal uh, desperation with, with something that, you know, had a, uh, nagged them for like 10 years, 20 years. And when you read a lot of interviews, they try to connect, you know, when I was in my childhood, I had this closet and that's why I invented cloud storage um, or, you know, something like that. They try to paint, paint this thread. So when, when I look at the data, that's not necessarily true. A lot of founders, you know, they didn't solve the same, the, you know, personal problems and they weren't from the same industry. They went through, you know, an ideation process. They changed the idea dozen times you know a lot of them took two years we never hear about that process because we always hear the last step you know somebody takes two years think about it change their idea blah 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 
And then when, when the last idea was successful, we only hear about that. And we somehow hear about, you know, this was my life mission from day one. Uh, we don't hear about that kind of process that went, they went through. So a lot of these successful founders, they, they had, you know, identified a trend or like a market that they thought it's interesting. And then they found the correct thing. So for example, Okta, you know, a company does password management and authentication. A lot of times you may think, okay, this, this person was crazy about passwords all, all his life, but it wasn't the case. You know, he had identified that the move from on-prem to SaaS would create a lot of problems. Uh, in terms of access. And, you know, he wanted to build something in this move to SaaS back in 2008. And he, you know, tried a bunch of different ideas. I think his first idea was about, you know, measuring how different cloud applications are doing. And, you know, after a couple of tries, the idea changed to Okta. And that's the same thread, you know, in, in a lot of these very successful entrepreneurs that, you know, they change the idea a dozen times. And these are even pivots. This is pre-pivot. This is pre-company. When they're working at the previous company or just thinking what's next, they jump from industry to industry, from company to another company to, you know, find what's working. We end up in interviews hearing about the last version. And that's why we kind of feel like the narrative is, you know, they came up with an idea overnight and that was the best idea they had, but we don't hear about the process that they took that, you know, they found the market, they tried to identify, you know, what's going on and, you know, talk to customers and change that idea as much as needed. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, like, look, let's look at investment capital. What is the, what is the path you see here? David asked, like seed, series A, like what are the, what are the paths that they followed? Like at, when did they raise the seed round? At, at what point did they raise the A? At what time did they raise the B and route? Yeah. This is a this is the not so encouraging part of the data. The the billion dollar companies they were a lot more likely to raise more money and faster than the other companies. The companies that ended up being successful they raised more and they raised faster uh, than than other companies. So the average first round uh, that they raised were about four million dollars compared to two point three million dollars for the random group. And the average second round of fundraising for the billion dollar companies was $15 million compared to $4.1 million for the random group. And they raised at a cadence of almost one round every year compared to about, you know, one round every other year for the random group. And now when you look at it, people are raising, it seems like every three to six months. Uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, my data covers 2005 to end of 2018. I think we are in an anomaly in the market and I'm, I'm glad my data doesn't include 2021 because I- Because I it, would, know, it would go it would break the data. I have a friend who raised a seed series A and a series B, I think 80 plus million all in a span of six months. And that is that is really interesting. What do you think though right now, looking at the market right now, um, what's your take on the kind of valuations at series A and series B? And when do you think the money is going to dry out? I mean, it's crazy what you see, but it's, you know, I think obviously we know, we know what the reason is there. There's a lot of capital in the market and you know, interest rates are low and venture capital seems like a very reasonable way to deploy that capital because, because of where interests are and, you know, other asset classes. And that's why you see a lot of, a lot of money in venture and, you know, startups, but that doesn't mean startups are necessarily low quality. You see a lot of amazing founders, you know, starting companies, a lot of people leaving corporations to start companies. So, you know, it's like, more and more people are starting companies, more and more industries are now being disrupted. You know, it used to be SaaS tech, only that. Tech is now being verticalized into every other industry from agriculture to, you know, chemicals to energy to environment. And that's why, you know, tech used to be an $800 billion market. Now it's, you know, a $10 trillion market or more because tech is now every industry. 
So I think that's that's all good things. Founders going big markets, there's now capital for them. Valuations are you know obviously a little bit frothy and things may not stay like like it is. But I think the, the bigger point picture here is it's good if more founders are starting companies, more people are employed and more capital is going towards people doing innovative things rather than the stock market. Definitely. And uh, you know, everybody is tech. And if you look at it, COVID has sort of accelerate digital transformation. A few years ago, we had the CEO of uh, New York Times speak and his talk was everyone is a software company. And that's yeah. playing That's playing out. I mean, when we started Boast, everyone would be like, why are you chasing after tech? You guys are going to die. But today, like tech is the biggest industry. Now, it says here, and I think Eric's question was answered. I've heard that founders that solve a problem for their own business, like the founder of Shopify, have a better chance of success. I don't think that's true. You said that pretty much. Or Yeah, that's basically myth. That's, that's, that's a, a popular narrative. What's another popular narrative that you've heard that you've not talked about? Um, I think the other popular narrative is companies that create a new market, like the companies that you know create a category, they are bigger companies on average. They're not. Companies that, that compete for share and better execute, they are on average larger companies than the ones that create a new market. Because one would argue that Apple wasn't the first uh, portable music were. player. They weren't. They didn't Definitely. create that category. They came in and they just did it better and executed better. Yeah, I mean, Apple came 12 years after the first smartphone. I actually have a chapter on that. Actually, that's that's one of the data points I have. It's on market timing. At least 70% of unicorns, their product and idea, it was a recycled idea. That's I think that's a staggering number. Less than 30% were first time to market. 70%, they were you know, some of them were fifths or later uh, to market. So it's not about being first, it's about being close to a inflection point. Maybe it's regulation, you know, uh, Affordable Care Act that opened up individual health market insurance. And that opened up for companies like Oscar Hulse. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street uh, Act, it mandated banks to give electronic access to bank records. And that gave, you know, that opened up opportunity for a company like Plaid uh, to you know, create a $15 billion company now. So a lot of times it's regulation. A lot of times it's technology. You know, Back in 1995, when General Magic built a smartphone, touch screens weren't working. Processors were taking a lot of batteries, so smartphones weren't viable. In 2007, the technology was there, so it happened. Same thing for Uber. You know, GPS costed a you know, dollar per call uh, for European carriers back, back in the day, and in 2007, it was free with the iPhone. So that's why companies like Uber could, could get started. How about in terms of exec hires, right? So like, you know, you get two hackers, they're really good, they're building stuff, and they have a technical background, but really not managed teams. At what point do you see people bringing in, I guess, you know, I, I often say this, and it's a, it's a common Silicon Valley trope, startups are like pirates. At what point do you bring in the Navy? So if you're talking specifically about CEO, changing CEO, that's that's an interesting data point that I have, that 73% of companies that are acquired or IPO'd for more than $1 billion, they had the founder remaining a CEO, at least until the point of that exit. So it's 70, 73% versus 27%. In failed unicorns, it's the reverse. It's 57% was a hired CEO versus 47% or 43%. Uh, the founding CEO. Obviously, again, there's no causation here. Company was doing bad. They brought a new CEO. So you can't really predict anything from that. But it's, I think, encouraging that more and more founders are remaining at CEO, you know, until the point of exits and these billion dollar valuation outcomes. In terms of executive hires, they did hire pretty good. 
like from the first hire. Let me give some examples. Stitch Fix, uh, Katrina Lake, you know, she wasn't a second time founder, no, no amazing track record before. But, you know, as some of the first couple of hires, she, she was able to sell the vision and bring the then COO of Walmart.com to join her and the then VP of data science uh, and analytics from Netflix to come and join her. Uh, same thing for Brex. You know, they were able to bring a CFO and a general counsel from Stripe uh, and SoFi to join them. So they were able to hire executives from day one uh, much better than everybody else. And that definitely helps. Yeah, because you know, part of that is those kind of resources and credibility. And if you if you look at all the public companies that's IPO in the last decade or so, the biggest outcomes there are founder CEO led, right? Um, they've not switched. So your data agrees with it. And then they've they fill yeah, they were 18.5%. They generate the 18.5% more value on average, the founder led companies. If the if the founder can say stay in, nothing really replaces the vision, then the job of the founder is to bring in leaders to help them realize that Execute. vision. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Any any other sort of uh, actually, you know what? Um I'm 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 diving into the questions here. It's so hard to comb through everything that uh, <laughs> that came that that is coming up. Guys, type your questions in the QA tab. It becomes very hard for me to parse through, but like there's the last one from Lee. What about race? Like, you know, culture, race, like where their their background, their ethnic background. Yeah, I I did not quantify that. I think, you know, obviously there's there's nothing predictive in that. So I didn't want to, you know. Why do you say there's nothing predictive in that? Because I, I, I guess a lot of the unicorn founders over there are are from various backgrounds, right? Of course, you definitely see see the, the diversity there, but it's um, you know I I didn't want to talk about or you know strengthen any stereotypes that might be out there about you know race and gender. Obviously, a very few number of these billion dollar companies were started by female founders. Does that mean anything about female founders? No. You know, it's a trend. There, there are no more and more female founders starting billion dollar companies. And that's that's an amazing trend to see and you know, see that strengthen over the years. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see a lot of these things, you know, uh, become better uh, in the future years. And they've definitely become much better over the past five years compared to the past 20 years, for example. Yeah. You know what? Lee makes a good point, though, right? Like, um People are always investing in people who are similar to them. Then how do you grow? And I made an interesting post on LinkedIn that sort of is getting a lot of flag. I said culture fit is the biggest uh, BS trope in the history of business. Try to hire different than similar align on values versus who can be your drinking buddy or like, you know, who do you connect with kind of thing. So I, I get that. But I think with more, I feel like, you know, everything ties to this theme of resources and connections. If you're connected and you're resourceful, Everything else, everything else follows. And how do you break that? Um, what about yeah, I mean, part of Lee's question? I, I think part of it was like, if, if, you know, if I didn't go to an Ivy League school, you know, actually there, there was as many founders of these billion dollar companies that did not go to a top 100 school as there were founders who went to top 10 schools. So, you know, there, there's a lot of encouraging things that, that you can see in, in terms of their education, like, or, or, or another panelist asking what did not matter. Education level didn't matter. Whether you had a PhD or a law degree or medical degree or bachelor's or MBA, that the degree didn't matter. The age didn't matter. Being technical or not didn't matter. So, you know, a lot of these, these factors are, that are proxy metrics, they didn't necessarily uh, matter. And, you know, it's encouraging to see that you know, there, there were a lot of, uh, you know, people who didn't go to Ivy Leagues, who didn't go even to schools, not in the top 100, 
to be able to start these billion dollar companies by starting their own projects, starting their own companies. You know, it's, it was obviously a harder path, uh, but, but finally and eventually they got there. Now, here's an, another question, and this is an interesting one, and I, and I think this is going to skew. Uh, what percentage of unicorns are self-funded versus billion dollars? <laughs> I know the answer. 90, 92% are venture capital backed, 7% are bootstrapped, and 1% are self-funded. Wow. It's, 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 it's a unicorn within a unicorn. It's like, it's magic, basically. It's like finding yeah, a... But I mean, part, part of it is like, I think there shouldn't be much shocking about this. You know, venture back to companies, the idea is, you know, take high risk, high risk of, you know, failure to become a multi-billion dollar company. There are a lot of amazing founders who create bootstrap companies or self-funded companies, get it to $30 million annual revenue. And it's an amazing business for them. They have a much higher chance of, you know, becoming wealthy and creating a lot of jobs and be more happy. So it, it doesn't say anything bad about bootstrap or self-funded different different risk profiles and different takes. You know, a lot of a lot of these self-funded companies are founders are more successful than you know venture-backed companies. Awesome. Yeah. So Dama asks here, could you talk a little bit about visible traits of great execution? And this could be from your data or all the companies um, you meet to invest in. What are the visible traits of great execution? I don't have a specific data point on that. I would say it's, it's about hiring an exec team early on. Uh, wh what I look at is, you know, who, who are the first couple hires? Like, who are you able to convince? I, I always talk about, you know, people in your company, people around your company, and people talking about your company. Who have you convinced to be in, in your circle, to be in, ideally to work for you full-time, if not to be an angel investor or, you know, advisors? This is, you know, that, that idea of being able to create that, that circle of trust uh, around you because these are the people who will bring you customers and bring you the future hires and bring you the future investors. And then was there like any sort of industry barometer one way or the other? Like what percentage of founders shot up to a billion dollar valuation or more quicker than others? Like B2B, B2C, specific verticals. Did you find anything in there? Yeah, I mean, it is the B2C ones that became faster, obviously. It's, it kind of makes sense. Um, the, 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 the deeper tech companies, it took longer. The kind of consumer companies, it took shorter. However, because there are more companies, more kind of system uh, integration, basically low-tech companies being started and a lot of consumer tech companies, they were less likely uh, to build these billion-dollar companies compared to companies which were like deep tech or medium tech. It took them longer, but they had a little bit, you know, higher chances of becoming billion-dollar companies because there, there isn't as many companies that, that are starting in those domains. Obviously, the, the biggest part is, is software, uh, consumer software and productivity SaaS software. The biggest pain points were, you know, saving people time and saving people money. These are the main categories of, of products that people were building in these billion-dollar companies compared to security, safety, wellness, entertainment, um, and other, other kind of ideas and posts. Now, is there, was there a typical business model that took prevalence over others in that data set? I did not quantify specific business models. That would yeah. be an interesting thing to actually quantify. 
Yeah, I mean, there's... I think a lot of companies change it. it. I think the point is, you know, all these companies change their business models from day one to year one to year five. And, um, you know, Eric asked here, is there a reason why investors prefer B2B versus B2C? You know, I think about that as high risk, high reward. B2C is higher higher risk, bigger market. What's what's your take on that? I think it's partly that. I mean, it's it feels that B2B is um, more controlled that you can kind of guess what the parameters are. You can understand, you know, what the market may look like. It, it might be an easier job for an investor to, to assess that compared to consumer ones. But there was, there was the same number of consumer billion dollar companies founded compared to B2B software, B, B2B SaaS kind of uh, unicorns founded. So they aren't lesser likely. It's probably just maybe easier to assess for investors. So, um, Sharif asked you, how did they choose between different ideas they have in different industries? Um, any any sort of gauge there? Like, how do you pick what idea to chase? Yeah, I mean, I would probably think number one is passion, and, and number two is is the idea of product market fit. Right? Who who's pulling the product out of you faster and harder? So, I think a lot of these founders are trying to talk to customers and see who's buying that, and they wouldn't, you know, they would keep changing the idea until they see somebody's asking them, hey, here's my money, give that product. Definitely. Sharif asked as a follow-up question to resources, because as we peel the onion back on each question, it turns into like, hey, you need to be super resourceful. What is the best way to connect, in your opinion, if you're like, you know, an introvert? <laughs> it's, it's not about going to events. It's not about talking that much. It's, I think it's about doing stuff. When you, when you work on a project, um, you end up interacting with a lot of people. When you work at a company, when you create a company, that's where meaningful relations get built. And I don't think that's that's relevant to being an introvert or an extrovert. I don't I don't think being resourceful about is about you know how many conferences you go to or how many how many parties you go to and you know how many business cards you collect. It's about how many deep relationships, deep working relationships you produce. And that, that doesn't have to do anything with introverts or extrovert. I would consider myself an introvert. I would consider myself an introvert, but I seem like an extrovert. I'm an intro extrovert. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my thing is we, you know, when we started Boast, we we had no money, right? And we we grew to 10 ARR with no resources. But we started traction as a community. And my goal was I wanted to learn from people. So I'd invite them to interview people. And then I I opened them up to a massive community and that grew over time, but those relationships carried on. I think like small collaborations go a long way. You said something which is very important. It's not about having 20,000 followers on Twitter, but it's about having 20 people that you can rely on anytime for advice, right? And that Yeah, goes for advice or, you know, introducing you to somebody or, you know, get, because if, if you're connected to 20, well, connected people and you help them and they help you, then you can probably reach to anybody you want. Exactly. It's about having a small network group of people who believe in you as a founder and your vision. That's great. And you add value to them. You, you always need to give more than you receive. Yeah. Give first, become successful by enabling the success of, uh, of others. others. So Anna asks, what about solo founders and co-founder teams? Any data you found there on like the size? Let's, let's, let's ask the question. Do you think... What percentage of unicorns do you think were solo founders? I would say very small. Like what percentage? <laughs> Team, teamwork uh, makes the dream work. I would go with five to 10. Okay, five to 10. The answer is 20. Wow. One out of every $5 billion company was started by solo founder. But That's they had somebody than... early on to help them? Um, sure. 
but, but it's and and when you compare the two groups solo founders were not less likely to build unicorns so again being a solo founder is not a bad thing as long as you know again you have had these resources and you go after the right product and the idea being being a solo founder on its own wasn't a negative thing Definitely Eric Yuan, founder of Zoom, was solo founder. Flexport is solo founder. There's a lot of examples of unicorns that are solo founded. Definitely. You know what? Uh, Philip asks a very unconventional question, <laughs> or, or not quite. How to convince non-tech founders who want to send fund to go the VC route? I end up, uh, I end up convincing a technical founder to go the VC route. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how do you convince people to go the re- uh, VC route when they want to sell fund? I mean, it's. I think it's it's very different path. Like I think a lot of founders should consider bootstrapping rather than taking venture capital, or because you know every round, every dollar of money you take, you are setting yourself up for less personal success if the company fails. So you can personally be more successful if you build a sustainable company on your own. That's you know a medium level success rather than taking on so much risk and you know a stack of preference ahead of you for investors by raising a lot of money in that company like that that increases the price that your company needs to be acquired for you to personally and for you and your employees to to make anything out of that so i think it's about the risk stage you know do you want to make it big or you know you don't care it's like one billion dollar company or i don't care even if 10 years of my life was worth zero if you want to take that path that's that's a venture capital path if not, then you know may, maybe thinking about the other routes is good. You know what? I'm going to ask a question here, and maybe people can say yes or say say uh, give give the answer here. Do you guys want to be rich or king? <laughs> right? That uh, is a good question, <laughs> and, and that's that what is it the comes out. Question. Yeah, that is, that is the value, right? Uh, you, you know, if you can't be both, let me ca- caveat it with that <laughs> because um, you, you can either Happy have control or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> happy happy is a good answer. And so like, you know, that drives, right? Do you want control? Then don't bring VCs. If you if you obsess sell about ice control, cream. If you want to be happy, sell ice cream. <laughs> definitely. Um, I want to take the last question here with Casey from Omers. Casey's been a great fun, friend of traction and a supporter. So I want to I want to make sure I answer his question. Given the importance of evaluating the founding team and resources available to them. Do you have any advice regarding how to evaluate teams at scale? Are there data signals you can look at to prioritize which teams to speak with? I mean, I guess that the, the point of this book is, is to reduce these kind of stereotypes and proxy metrics. So I don't, I don't want, want the book to create more barriers for founders to, to speak with investors and raise funding. It, I want to you know, show that a lot of these proxy metrics like education and university or being technical uh is important so i i definitely don't want the book to become a an extra signal or barrier for founders to raise money but i think it's 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 the ability of of the founders to to attract these great uh executive level people to their team in the early days uh that that is a great signal even in the seed round even the series a round uh if they can attract these you know super high level executives these companies end up doing super well Definitely. Now, I want to I want to put a follow up question uh, to that as well, right? A lot of people are asking questions around what percentage of the founders get booted out of their own company by VCs and whatnot. I think the stat there was seventy percent the founder led CEOs are still there. But this this prompts a follow up question: Do you value money, power, or impact? 
And, and if you think that through, what is most important to you? Impact, meaning changing industries, creating a, a lasting legacy or money or control slash power, that will determine how you feel about your position in the company, I feel a lot of, a lot of times, right? Like for yeah. me, I don't care about titles. <laughs> I feel I, I come from a very poverty, not poverty, middle-class family. My, my father raised a family on like $50,000 salary. For me, I've already surpassed what I thought when I was out of college. So for me, it's like, okay, can I create impact? It's more, right. more important than money or power. Now, one, one last question here um, on timing. You, you touched a little bit on it, but what does good luck timing tell us? It's, I think that's, that's one of the hardest questions to crack the code of, but I think the main takeaway is we don't need to be first. The, the thing about this idea was tried before and failed. That's not necessarily a valid uh, point. And it's, it's a good point. Like if, if you like an idea and that's failed before, go deep. Go try to find those founders, speak to them, understand why, why it failed. Was it because a chicken and egg problem? Was it because of the unit economics? Was it something around the dynamics or the competitive landscape? Those are valid things. But you know, we ran out of funding, founder conflict, all of these other things. You know, maybe you can, you can do that company, execute better and, and win this time. So go to the root. And you know, if there's a lot of ideas that are worse using recycled ideas, a lot of these billion dollar companies were in fact recycled ideas. Definitely. Zenia asked here, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm literally, this is gonna be the last question from the audience. Um, if you could give us one or two examples of the 1% self-funded unicorns that you talked about, anyone come to mind? I think this company goes Zscaler. That's yeah. a cybersecurity company that, that was self-funded. The, the founder had sold four companies before, so he had a lot of money to Zoho. I, Zoho, I know, is self-funded too. We interviewed the founder. They're self-funded, took no outside funding, and it's a, a, I think, 500 million in revenue. But folks, please read Ali's book. It's great. Super founders, 30,000 data points, fantastic VC, lots of insights to build a unicorn, and the money is going to uh, is going to get donated. Ali, um, what's next for you and Data Collective? Can we expect a part two of this book? Oh, well, I mean, it, it took four years to, to write the part one. So I'm for now, I'm going to <laughs> to see, see the launch through and, and be happy with where it gets, but I, I'm pretty sure it, it creates an itch uh, for the next things to come. But you know, I hope it creates, creates uh, inspiration in founders to, to go out and start building things and you know, for investors to forget proxy rules and uh, look, look at the merit. Definitely look at the merit, look at the data and, and look at the people. Um, any resources you recommend uh, that you know, go to for you, whether it's books, podcasts, uh, tools, like anything that you leverage from time to time that you read cold email <laughs> i cold email you ali <laughs> that worked you know cold like don't don't be afraid of cold emailing people provide valid don't just cold email 300 people like know the one people you need to reach out and you know cold email write a good you know one paragraph email why you want to talk to them what's your problem provide value to them first and you know that's that, that's also another way to learn build a network you have a question find the best person who has solved that problem and send them a simple email say hey i have the same problem you solved this problem four years ago can you tell me why or how they will respond and you will create a connection cold email is the big is the leading indicator to all my relationships 80 percent of the traction speakers the 250 plus speakers are through cold email this is awesome ali where can we find you on social and whatnot yeah ali tamasa linkedin twitter 
um, that's where I am. And email is ali at bcvc.com. Awesome. Great pleasure, Ali, to have you. I learned a ton. The audience learned a ton. It was super engaging. One of the most engaging sessions we've ran in recent times. So thanks for keeping it. Thanks for keeping it engaging and wishing you great success with the book launch. Congrats. And see you on the other side sometime. I need some traction. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.